From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. As the population swells in southeastern North Carolina and developers make room for more buildings, homes, apartments, stores, schools, we're witnessing the rapid destruction of natural areas. There's no question people need places to live, shop, work, and recreate. But are there questions we could be asking ourselves? in the face of study after study warning us about the disappearance of species after species. Should we be asking ourselves, what can we do to conserve some natural areas as we watch trees vanish and human-created habitat expand? Are we also witnessing a catastrophic failure of imagination? Can we do better? And what would that look like? As we'll hear today, human survival depends upon the survival of other species. My guest today describes himself as an environmentalist because he is a humanist. We're going to hear our second installment of In the Wild Coastal Plain, a new series we created in which we meet a plant or animal and learn about it, how it lives, what it eats, what we know of its role in the ecosystem. You can find episodes of In the Wild Coastal Plain on our website in the Coastline feed at whqr.org. Our guide in the wild coastal plain is Andy Wood. His popular commentaries on local wildlife aired on WHQR starting in 1987. He's compiled the most memorable pieces into a book entitled Backyard Carolina, Two Decades of Public Radio Commentary. But he actually almost went for three decades until 2015. He now directs the Coastal Plain Conservation Group, a nonprofit dedicated to conserving what's left of the coastal plain in southeastern North Carolina, and he joins me now. Andy Wood, welcome to Coastline. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you with us. You've described this area as one of the most biodiverse spots on the east coast of the United States. At least it was once. Can we still say that? We can say that for specific areas like Holly Shelter Game Land in Pender County and Green Swamp in Brunswick and Columbus County. Um, can't really say that about any significant areas, uh, well, any major area of New Hanover County, although there are parcels left in New Hanover County that still rise to that qualification as being wildly biodiverse. But these are tracks generally less than a thousand acres. And while that sounds like a lot, I, you know, that sounds very cavalier, you know, less than a thousand acres. A thousand acres is a big area, um, but it's maybe one-fifth of what a single black bear needs. We don't often think about natural areas in that way as as being important to be connected. And we've talked a little bit about that on Coastline in the past, what fragmentation can do to an ecosystem. But especially in this second installment of In the Wild Coastal Plain, we're focusing on the red-cockaded woodpecker. So we also have to focus on the longleaf pine because those two species have intertwined fates. But what is why do they need uh, such large natural areas, unfragmented? 
um, in the case of the red cockaded woodpecker, it is a non-migratory bird species. So it inhabits one area, typically depending on the quality of the longleaf pine habitat that it's in, like let's say holly shelter, for example. There, uh, in holly shelter, the red cockaded woodpeckers live as family, distinct family units. They are uh, communal breeders. That is, the offspring from one year remain with the parents the following year and maybe even another year after that to help them raise their successive generation of offspring. Do you mean their grandchildren? Correct. Um, so siblings, the, the class of 2022, let's say, uh, those birds stayed with the parents this year and are still helping the, the, the parents raise the class of 2023. So the red cockaded woodpecker is about the size of a bluebird, a little bigger, um, and they don't have uh, greatly visible red. That's that's a misnomer. They uh, it has everything to do with the Revolutionary War. But anyway, and we're going to uh, hear a little more about that in this right, upcoming right. episode so in the next segment. If you see a woodpecker in your yard with a bold red head, that is not a red cockaded woodpecker. Um, they have white cheeks and they live with longleaf pine. They're the only woodpecker that excavates a cavity in a living pine tree in the eastern U.S. And um, it takes years for them to establish a habitat of 80 to 200 plus acres just for their family to inhabit. If it's suitable longleaf pine habitat, there will be woodpeckers in there, but it has to be a large chunk of longleaf pine habitat. It can't be your backyard. They require lots and lots of pine trees because pine trees aren't dripping with spiders and caterpillars and other insects for the woodpecker to eat. So all day long, they're flaking off the paper-thin outer layer of bark on a pine tree looking for some little morsel hidden under that little flake of pine bark, a spider, a caterpillar, a cockroach. Cockroaches and ants make up the bulk of a woodpecker's uh, red cockaded woodpecker's diet. So when we talk about habitat fragmentation, we're talking about severing the link between one family of woodpeckers and the potential new habitat for their offspring to move into. And it's important to understand that longleaf pine ecosystem, the longleaf pine habitat, once covered over 93 million acres of the American Southeast. And now it's reduced to about 3 million acres. So all of the plants and wildlife associated with longleaf pine habitat, they are reduced to about 3% of what they were pre-European settlement. So that's a staggering decline. If we saw that in the Amazon, it would be a real mess. Well, it's a mess here. Um, we've converted longleaf into loblolly plantations and, and subdivisions, roads, all kinds of things. Why so, can't other pine trees work? They do. Woodpeckers will use loblolly and pond pine occasionally, but the longleaf has a history with us because it produces copious amounts of sap. And so you've heard the term navel stores and pine tar or Tar Heel State. Those are references back to the sap 
that's produced by, produced by Longleaf that we harvested back in the 17, late 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, and exported to England to you, where it was used to seal rigging on ships and seal the hulls of ships um, and many, many other uses of pine, pine sap from Longleaf. The woodpecker figured that out tens of thousands of years ago and real and figured out if it excavates little sap wells in the bark of the tree the tree will weep lots of sap coating the outside of the tree making it difficult for predators to climb up that tree so the longleaf is specifically selected because it provides a fairly safe haven for this weird little bird the bird is protected it is a federally endangered species so uh, I think during the Trump administration, there were some rules changed that made it a little bit easier to change the status of an endangered species. And in June of 2023, the New York Times reported on a push by the Biden administration to restore some of those protections uh, for endangered species. U.S. Fish and Wildlife National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Fisheries Service want to make it harder to remove a species from the endangered list. And they want to restore a provision that strengthens protections. Here in southeastern North Carolina, there are uh, acres, there are just swaths of undeveloped acres that are considered unbuildable right now because their habitat, and I'm not talking about Holly Shelter, which right. is a conservation area. Right, state-owned. Right. Mm-hmm. But I'm talking about uh, privately owned areas where you can't build because they have found red cockaded woodpeckers in those areas. It's very frustrating mm-hmm. for developers who own these these swaths of land. It, I'm sure that it is. Don't and we have enough other kinds of woodpeckers? No. Um Again, getting back to the the thing you've heard me say a bunch of times about rivets. Every species is a living rivet holding together the ecosystem of this planet that I call a starship because it is. We're orbiting a star that's orbiting a galaxy that is swirling, not swirling, is screaming through the universe at a very alarming speed. And... um, we're in this little tiny speck of a starship, and we're only alive because of ecosystem services provided by habitats, forests, swamps, the ocean, the single ocean. There is one ocean on Earth. We've divided it into sections and given them names, but there is one ocean. The water that we all drink is the same water that Brontosaurus drank. It's no, it's not new. We don't make new water. We recycle, or we, Earth's living life support system, ecosystem, is cycling our water. So in addition to blocking off areas that are unbuildable because there's an endangered species living there, are there ways that we could be a little more thoughtful and uh, conservation-minded even when we're developing are there things that we're not doing now that we could be? Yes. And, and one thing that I think is especially important right now is to approach landowners and ask if they would be willing to put that land into a conservation easement if 
we can come up with the money to pay them to do it. And this isn't for the baby boomer age landowner. This is for the baby boomer age landowners, children and grandchildren. This isn't about me and you. The, the game of the environment isn't about me and you. It's about our kids and grandkids. We're leaving them a mess. And, and I can say that unequivocally. I, I stand by my words, whoever reads or hears them. Um, we're leaving a real mess for young generations. And so one of the things that we can do right now to help their future is set aside as much forest land as possible. And I hope some elected policymakers are listening right now. It's on them to make this happen. Um, there are landowners that are, would be willing to put their land into conservation, but they have that land as their source of revenue. So instead of subsidizing development, let's subsidize people to grow trees and not plantation forests. I mean ecosystems that provide ecosystem services to homo sapiens, to our species. Forget bears. Well, no, I didn't say that. Um, but put us at the top of the pyramid and then think about how unstable you're willing to let the base of that pyramid become. That's where we are. So it makes sense. Uh, conservation easements mm-hmm. and, and, putting, and, and saving land, putting them into a, a land trust of, of some sort. Mm-hmm. What about areas that are going to be developed? We know they're going to be developed. A developer is about to build, you know, 300 houses Right. And, and take out a bunch of trees. Is there anything that developer could do that could preserve something that's of benefit? Yes. And, and I would suggest going back to the architectural books of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s and look at how the architect said, this oak tree in this front yard of this little 1,000-square-foot house that we're going to build is going to add so much value to the property. So we're going to leave that oak, and we're going to shift the house five feet in one direction or another to accommodate that oak tree, which one day will be providing shade and and birdsong. So um, what we're seeing here is a scorched-earth approach to development. We go in – I say we. I don't. But we're seeing developers who – aren't connected to this place in any spiritual way that I can tell because the first thing they do is bring in a a huge bulldozer and remove all the trees and all the understory vegetation and and pile it up and then burn it Um, with everything that was living in that ecosystem, box turtles, rabbits, mice, uh, birds, ground-nesting birds, lizards, frogs, toads, all of those things, all the insects, all the spiders – Millions of animals are being piled up per acre. If you count in spiders and insects, you're getting into millions of animals being piled up and burned. And then we're breathing that smoke. If you smell smoke, you are smelling vapors 1,000 times more dangerous than tobacco smoke. Wood smoke is horribly dangerous. It contains polycyclic hydrocarbons, benzene, formaldehyde. 
all sorts of stuff you don't want to be breathing. But Andy, it's perfectly legal for developers to burn that vegetation. So if it was that dangerous, wouldn't there be a regulation about it? You would think that the Environmental Protection Agency would be all over this. However, there are loopholes that developers can find, especially through forestry practices, which this isn't forestry, they're just developing. But they're using forestry exemptions to burn this stuff without a permit. So what could we do differently? Not go in and cut everything corner to corner. It's going to make it a little more difficult to leave trees in place. And more expensive. And a little more expensive. But isn't our world worth something more than scorched earth? Yeah. So... Can we do it different? Yes. And why should we do it differently? Because the way we're designing developments right now is on the minimum design criteria framework. So stormwater. Our stormwater control measures for a subdivision are built to accommodate stormwater coming off of rooftop, driveways, and roads. And only with enough capacity to handle the first one and a half inches of rain. Well, two days ago, we got three inches of rain, no, yesterday, in, in, uh, in just a matter of a couple of hours. So, um, And we're also seeing now more flooding, faster flooding. Oh, without a doubt. Than and, we've seen. And, I mean, it's, it's visible. And I've heard this from all over, I'm not going to say, the Cape Fear region. Because as we know now, that is not correct. It's the coastal plain. But southeastern North Carolina, people are seeing faster flooding because there are more impervious surfaces. In large part because the soil that we have to work with here is hydric. It's wetland soil. So the Supreme Court has done its best to do away with wetland protections for very ulterior motives, um, in my opinion. But Uh, The fact remains, a wetland is a wetland is a wetland. You can call it whatever you want, but a wetland is defined by three criteria, hydric wet soils, hydric wet-loving plants, and groundwater within 12 inches of the soil surface during the growing season. Well, that's here. It's everywhere around here. We've already developed the upland, the longleaf pine. All of that, for the most part, is gone in New Hanover County and and surrounds. That's the high, dry areas. So now we're going into, we've cooked the golden goose, and now we're scrambling her eggs. So um, those eggs are these marginal wetland areas that environmental consultants are able to go in during periods of low rain and you got three criteria. If you don't meet one of those three, it's not a wetland. The Corps of Engineers, which is a permitting agency more than a regulatory agency, they'll sign off because they're, you know, part of the government not trying to damage the economy. And we think right now that uh, development is, is very important, even though payroll from development in this area makes 6% of this area's entire payroll. You're listening to Coastline. We're about to hear the second installment of our new series in the wild coastal plain when we return from this break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.
you're listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. As we watch natural areas disappear, we're taking a closer look at what we're losing, species by species, in a new series called In the Wild Coastal Plain. Andy Wood is our guide, and here is our second episode. So we're going to be looking for one of the rarest animals in this region. The red cockaded woodpecker, which is an, I think enigmatic might be the right word. That's Andy Wood, director of Coastal Plain Conservation Group. And I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn, and you are in the wild coastal plain. As southeastern North Carolina's population swells, natural areas that make this a biodiversity hotspot are disappearing. In each episode of In the Wild Coastal Plain, we'll meet a species endemic to this hotspot, a plant or an animal, Sometimes both, as in this episode, also we can better understand where we live and who lives here with us. We're heading into Holly Shelter Gameland, which is a state-owned and managed public trust resource located in Pender County. And it is roughly, it encompasses roughly 70,000 acres, plus or minus. Uh, there's a couple of different game lands that are merged, so it might be closer to 80,000 acres. One of the last best pieces of this ecoregion's natural heritage, in terms of its size especially. This is a big chunk of land. We're looking for the red cockaded woodpecker in Holly Shelter because of the longleaf pine savannas. These two species, the bird and the tree, have their fates intertwined. Two members of a biodiversity hotspot in North Carolina's coastal plain ecosystem. And let's make this clear right up front. Yes, they're called red cockaded woodpeckers, but... Red cockaded woodpeckers don't reveal red. The male has a little match head sized patch of red on each side of its head, but Otherwise, you're not going to see red on a red cockaded woodpecker. That name has its connections back to the Revolutionary War when military officers wore a colored feather in their hat to denote their rank. Yankee Doodle went to town riding on a pony, stuck a colored feather in his hat and called himself a general. <laughs> I thought he called the feather macaroni, but Andy's the guide. Or something like that. So um, the red cockaded woodpecker has a little red patch that is covered by black feathers. And when the bird's upset, it will lift those black feathers, revealing that red patch, which is called a cockade. And the feather in Yankee Doodle's hat is called a cockade. During battle, they would cover that or remove that colored feather so the enemy didn't know that they were an officer. Wow. I get calls with some frequency. I think there's a red cockaded woodpecker in my yard. And my first question is, do you see red? Yes, its whole head is red. Ah, that might be a red-headed woodpecker, might be a pileated, might be a hairy, a downy, red-bellied, 
any number of even yellow-bellied sapsucker. It could be any number of woodpeckers. But if you see red on the woodpecker's head, it is unlikely to be a red-cockaded woodpecker. Got it. So remind me again why holly shelter is so important to this not red-headed, red-cockaded rare bird. The reason holly shelter is so important to that endangered species, and it is a federally endangered species, is because, as you can see, we're entering a, um, a longleaf pine savanna habitat. Longleaf pines are the favorite tree of red cockaded woodpeckers. They're also the state tree of North Carolina. Here's to the land of the longleaf pine, the summer. Here's to the land of the longleaf pine, summer land where the sun doth shine, all that. Andy's quite musical today. Maybe it's the bird song? Underneath these longleaf pine are clumps of wire grass mixed in with creeping blueberry, lionia, lakothwi. You can see some roadside white flowers. That's a weedy uh, dewberry, the uh, blackberry. You don't usually find blackberry out in a savanna. That's just roadside, rural garden stuff. So in the savanna itself that we're traveling through, we could probably count upwards of 60 to 80 different species of plants. But in some parts of Holly Shelter, you can throw a hula hoop on the ground and count upwards of dozens of different species of plants within that hula hoop's perimeter. That's how biodiverse Holly Shelter is. And as I mentioned, it's owned and managed by the Wildlife Resources Commission. And so state employees with the Wildlife Commission manage this property and much of their work centers around managing the property for, specifically for, red-cockaded woodpeckers. They manage it for other reasons as well, wildfire protection, reduction, there's a native azalea. This is how it is with Andy in the wild coastal plain. While he explains one element, he's always scanning the landscape, and even the smallest species will catch his eye. Yes, native azaleas are quite different from the ones you see throughout Wilmington's residential areas, the ones you see celebrated during the annual azalea festival, but that's for another episode. So why are red cockaded woodpeckers endangered? What's happening to them? Why are they endangered? Because at one time we had 93 million acres of longleaf pine habitat from North Carolina, Virginia line all the way to East Texas up into Southern Illinois. That number is now reduced to about 3 million acres. So everything associated with longleaf pine is as imperiled as the longleaf pine habitat. You might have heard the traffic sounds behind us. Andy wants to travel further inside Holly Shelter, further away from the man-made sounds, so that we can hear the wind soughing through the trees. And the birds, he says, the birds also need more quiet to communicate. Birds communicate by sound. A lot of their communication is, is visual as well, feathers and displays. But sound, their calls, are really, really important. And so when you hear all of that traffic noise, it should be very, very quiet out here. All we should hear is wind soughing through the trees, and yet we're hearing all of that noise. So all the birds that live in this area have to raise their voices to be heard over our din. Even noise pollution is an issue. 
so we drive in his pickup truck along a gravel road. on those trees mm -hmm. and if you look about eight feet above that band that pair of white bands you see a hole in the tree mm -hmm. that was created by a male red cockaded woodpecker that's a cavity tree and you see other trees in this area with that pair of white bands those white bands denote cavity trees that belong to a red cockaded woodpecker how, how do you know it's a it's a male that made the hole. The male does most of the excavating to create cavities for himself, his spouse, and their hoped for offspring. How they paint those white bands on the trees, we don't yet know. Um, <laughs> I, I kid. You got me. I kid. <laughs> it was just for a second, maybe two. The white bands are there, so the Wildlife Resources Commission staff know these are the significant trees in this patch of habitat, the ones hosting red cockaded woodpeckers. And when they do conduct a prescribed burn in here, they'll first go in and cut down, they'll mow down the grasses and any shrubs that might be, it's mostly grasses, uh, wiregrass around the base of the tree to reduce the risk of fire actually touching the tree. If you've spent any time in southeastern North Carolina, you've probably heard about prescribed burns. But do you understand why these burns, controlled and planned forest fires conducted by humans, what they actually do and why they're important? When fire comes through, it scorches, may not kill the branch, but it scorches it enough to stimulate the tree to just let that branch die. So you see, no lower branches. But if fire is kept away from these trees, they, they may retain some of their lower branches, but for the most part, they drop them in, a, in an area that gets periodically burned. So these low intensity fires allow the pine cones to drop their seed and grow more longleaf pines. In the Holly Shelter game land, where Andy Wood and I are on this April day, he's pointing out some longleafs that are in the grass stage. If you didn't know, you might think these were just a tuft of long, bright green grass. But if you look down into the middle of the plant, you'll see a little tuft of uh, what's called the apical meristem, the growing tip of the tree. And if we find a slightly older one, we'll get a better look at that growing tip. And this plant is one year older than the one we just looked at over there. This plant is about five years old. How do you know that? Because it's in the grass stage, and that's a rough estimate. It's in the grass stage for typically five to seven years. And then in that time, it's drilling a taproot down into the ground. This is very sandy soil. It's pure sand. This is all a former sand dune habitat. So if we were here thousands of years ago, these would be rolling sand dunes, much like what you see in the sand hills in closer to the Piedmont. 
Fayetteville area. So these are weathered and now low. So it's not much of a topography here, but it is sandy soil. So well-drained, and that means these trees have to drill a taproot like a carrot to get to moisture. So for five years, roughly, it's in that stage. And then with all of those needles around the growing tip of the plant, they act as a buffer against fire. So when fire comes through here, it'll be fairly quick. This whole area will burn in a matter of in a couple of hours. If everything goes well, if all the planning is correct, they'll have this done before lunch. So the fire comes through here as contradictory as this sounds, we would call it a cool fire because it sweeps through the wiregrass very quickly, doesn't build up a lot of heat, burns away inkberry, it'll toast all of these azaleas, but they'll spring back next year and it'll burn off the needles around the longleaf pine. But not the tip. And since fire actually promotes the growth of native grasses and wildflowers as well, what the Wildlife Resources Commission calls a grassy understory, the longleaf pine savanna then becomes important habitat for other species, such as Bachman sparrow and bobwhite quail. After the fire stimulates all this growth, managing the forest might involve thinning out some of the newer trees, so longleafs aren't trying to outcompete each other for nutrients. Just a moment ago, Andy told us that longleaf pines will spend five to seven years in the grass stage, very slow-growing trees. The reason it takes so long is longleaf pine is a very dense wood. And if you look at this tree stump that's been cut, you can see how close the rings are. This is almost rock hard. It's as hard as oak. By the time they're suitable nesting habitat for the red cockaded woodpecker, they're pretty old trees. So the male woodpecker finds a habitat here and determines that, okay, there's no other birds like me in this immediate area. It needs a territory of, depending on the quality of the trees, 80 to 200 acres or so for a territory. They're a non-migratory bird. This is their territory. We are standing in somebody's property, the bird's property. You understand this now. The red cockaded woodpecker is endangered because the great longleaf pine savannas are disappearing. There are just fewer places with that many connected acres. What's left? In New Hanover County, Carolina Beach State Park, Longleaf Park, Halliburton, and the campus of the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Of course, in Pender County, which is seeing its own explosive growth, Holly Shelter, not including adjacent game lands, boasts 63,520 acres. But back to our red cockaded woodpecker. He's hoping to start a family. So he's looking for a longleaf pine habitat that could be home. The woodpecker will identify a tree that it thinks will make a good cavity and begin by landing on the tree and flaking off the very outer bark on the tree. And in the process, you see underneath the gray weathered bark, it's bright red or brick red. So the woodpecker will flake away much of this outer bark smoothing the tree, and, and I'm talking about paper-thin pieces of bark. It's not going in and 
excavating all the bark off um, like a, you know, like a, a lathe. It's taking off the outer easy stuff, stuff that you could flake off with a, a fingernail. And the next step is to drill a hole through the bark called a sap well. And it's about an inch, two inches in diameter. And it's just a, a hole through the bark that starts to weep sap. The Tar Heel term is a reference to the sap that was derived from longleaf pine. What do they sound like? They have the sweetest little chattering call and they communicate with each other all day long. It's not a song like you would hear from a typical songbird. It's, it's a, and it's not lilting, it's a high pitch chattering. To me, it, it sounds like, hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm over here, what are you doing? Uh, well, I'm over here, what are you doing? Well, I'm still over here. Well, did you find anything? Not yet. So they're just bantering back and forth. And, and that banter probably reinforces the pair bond and the family unit because they do live as a family unit. They're what we call communal breeders. Unlike most birds, they provide extensive parental care for a long period of time for their offspring. The male scrapes off that thin outer bark, drills the sap wells, which you can see are, are weeping on there. So he's addressed those recently because trees are now uh, sending sap up, up to the top because we're in spring. So the trees are weeping and that sap coats the outer part of the tree like a candle, almost like candle wax. It's why they have to nest in living longleaf pine, says Andy, because the dead ones don't weep sap. That smoothness and presence of sap on the tree, we assume it helps deter predators like snakes, raccoons, things like that. So it makes it hard to climb up. If you went and hugged that tree, you would never get the sap off of your clothing. And any sap that's on your hand, that little bit of black right there. Andy's pointing to what looks like dirt on his own hand. That's from last week. I mean, it doesn't come <laughs> off. You can scrub and scrub and it doesn't come off. So um, it's, a, it's a great strategy, but it's labor intensive. He begins by excavating upward into the tree so that when it rains, rain won't come down the side of the tree and flow into the cavity that it will create after going upward into the tree to the heartwood, it then excavates downward to create the nest cavity itself, which looks like a, like a stocking filled with seeds. It, it's a, I don't know how to describe it, looks like a gourd, um, a hollow gourd. The male may have already attracted a mate, a female, and so he may be excavating the cavity for himself, or he may be working on two, one for himself and one for his mate. The whole process takes months to years. That's just for one pair of birds. And then he goes and starts working on other cavities because each cavity is a bedroom for each bird. They don't usually roost together at night, says Andy. They can, but... They seem to prefer separate sleeping quarters. Typically, the female has her cavity, he has his cavity, and then there'll be two or three more cavities, or more than that, to house their offspring. In the same tree? No, in different trees. In different trees. Yeah, so when you look around, you see there's another white-painted tree over 
oh, 200 feet away. And then there's two more, a couple few hundred feet away. And there's another one on the other side of this savanna. So right where we are standing, there's one, two, three, four, five cavity trees that, yeah, there's six. So this is kind of the hub of this bird's territory, which again may encompass 100, and, 100 plus acres. They are territorial birds. So, so like the beavers, they don't play well with other families. Not at all. And they don't play well with other cavity nesting birds like the bluebird. As our son Carson describes it, the, the red-cockaded woodpecker is a fiefdom. You've got a king and a queen, and then princes and princesses. Hmm. Are they having conversations too about royal relevance? North Carolina's Wildlife Resources Commission conducts periodic surveys of holly shelters' longleaf pines to find new cavities created by red-cockaded woodpeckers. Andy says they want to document every tree that houses one of these birds. When they do these surveys, they come into suitable habitat, spread themselves out in a line, and I've joined them multiple times. We spread out about 100 feet apart, and we walk through these savannas looking at every tree. So every tree, and there are thousands of trees in our eyesight right here, every tree in here has had our eyes on it, looking for new cavities, just to see what's going on. It's a measure of what's happening with these birds. The woodpeckers will sometimes nest in pond pine and loblolly pine, and Andy says there are rare examples of the birds nesting in a pond cypress, but longleaf pine is what they favor. As if we need a reminder, we're standing in the middle of a wild ecosystem. I'm asking Andy about what we lose if the longleaf pines and the red cockaded woodpeckers go extinct. But nature has other plans for this interview at the moment. We are witnessing a territory argument. Oh, there's the woodpecker. Did you see it just land on the tree? There's an, that's a bluebird. Bluebirds are the enemy of red cockaded woodpeckers because they'll try to take over a, a woodpecker's cavity and use it for their own. So the woodpecker just landed on this tree. It's on the backside because it knows we're here. That's the funny thing about birding. Um, people, even I've lowered my voice, which is silly. There it is. You see him? Solid white head. You see the bluebird chasing it off? Yeah. Being a nuisance. Everybody loves the bluebird. It is the most vicious animal in the in the bird kingdom. Uh, there we go, another one. The Wildlife Resources Commission agrees the open park-like nature of red cockaded woodpecker habitat also attracts eastern bluebirds, red-headed woodpeckers, different bird from the red cockaded deer, and southeastern fox squirrels. Those two RCWs are paired. They're together and they're trying to shoo away the bluebird that is thinking about taking over that cavity. So back to the million dollar question. What happens if we lose the red cockaded woodpecker? If it went extinct, what do we lose beyond just fodder for bird watchers? Of course we can't fully quantify the effects. Unintended consequences, unforeseeable outcomes makes the question unanswerable. But there are elements to the answer that are new discoveries for scientists. The woodpecker, we think, helps introduce red heart disease to new trees, which benefits itself. 
Red heart disease is a fungal infection that softens the extraordinarily hard, dense wood of the longleaf pine, wood that is so dense, Andy says a nail will bend before going into the wood if you don't drill a hole first. And while Andy also says the degree of softness is mostly undetectable to him, the birds know. Trees with red heart disease make cavity creation and the growth of the RCW fiefdom a little bit easier. These cavities are beneficial to a, a great number of other animals. Sometimes the cavities get abandoned and they get used by other species of birds. Great crested flycatcher, bluebird, brown-headed nuthatch, chickadees. So they're creating homes for other animals. Yet another way, you can't remove one species from the ecosystem without affecting the whole. Remember Andy's International Space Station analogy from episode one? The way to think of species, in my mind, the way I think of species, is as rivets holding together the life support system that's keeping us intact here on Earth. So imagine the International Space Station and the, the astronauts that are up there. Every day, they are looking at individual rivets and nuts and bolts that are holding together the space station and they understand and appreciate the value of each and every one of those rivets. And if one of them said, hey, you know, we don't need this one here. Really? You, you're willing to lose that rivet in this space station. And when you look at a plant or animal on Earth, it is a rivet holding together the life support system. You can call it an ecosystem if you want. But the fact of the matter is, if we lose all of the plants, if we scraped Earth clean, down to just dirt and water, humans would be extinct. We think we're invincible and we're not. We are wholly dependent on the, the pyramid of life, if you will, that is formed of plants and wildlife. And another woodpecker just came in. So I tell you, we're gonna step away and let them- They're trying to get back turf. to their- yeah. Oh, they don't care that we're here. Oh, they don't? Not, not really. I've stood under trees and had the woodpeckers flaking bark on my head. <laughs> they know we're here, says Andy, and he laughs at himself. He, like any responsible environmentalist, doesn't want to disturb the wildlife. But the reality is the birds are absolutely aware of us. Chickadees have different vocalizations to describe different animals in the environment. So for example, if there were chickadees around, they might be calling with notes that tell other chickadees, oh, there's humans in the field, or there's a snake on the ground, or there's a hawk. And we know that they are distinguishing different species. But what's really cool is other species of birds are picking up on what the chickadees are saying. So when the chickadee says snake, the birds in the area, they don't look up into the tree, they look down on the ground. When they say cat, they look all around to find that cat. It, it's just amazing. The, the communication that goes on around us, we think we're something with the interweb. Uh-uh, we got nothing on plants and wildlife. Even plants communicate with each other. We need them to survive. Each species that goes extinct, according to Andy Wood and many other scientists, each one brings the human species one step closer to that same outcome.
we do need to start giving serious thought to not just human rights, but nature rights. With all due respect to nature, we need to do that for our own sake. When I talk environmentalism, I'm talking about humanism. Thanks to our guide, Andy Wood of Coastal Plain Conservation Group. And thank you for joining us in the wild coastal plain of SENC, southeastern North Carolina. Find more at whqr.org under Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. And that's this edition of Coastline. Andy Wood, thank you so much for being our guide in the wild coastal plain. As always, my pleasure. Thank you. You can find episodes in the Coastline feed on our website at whqr.org or wherever you get podcasts. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.